0: Sometimes it can be weird being a pastor. You need to know it was never my choice to be a pastor. I never had that intent. I never had that ambition. All I wanted to do was be a cop. I wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to bust heads and make people behave themselves. Okay, That's all I wanted in life. But God had other plans, and so a pastor's kind of like that, except I don't get the bust heads, but I still try to make people behave themselves, sort of, right? But I'm sure like teachers or carpenters or IT people or whatever can have weirdness to their jobs, to their occupations, but pastors do too. There's some oddities. One of the oddities that I run into from time to time, uh, typically it's like about, couple times a year. I'll be talking to somebody and we'll be setting up a time to get together and I'll say, well, hey, why don't you come by my office uh, Tuesday at 10 o'clock? And they're like, okay, it sounds great. Where's your office? And I'm like, "Uh, here at the church, uh, right up there. And they're like, what's your office doing here? Where do you work? (laughs) And I'm like, I'm pastor of this church. I, I work here. And they're like, this is a full-time job? <laughs> they're like, I thought you were just here on Sundays. I thought you had another job. This is a full-time job? I was like, yeah, it's a full-time job. Well, what do you do all week? And I'm like, I really don't know, tell you the truth. I have no idea what I do. I just kind of wing it. But, but sometimes it just blows people's mind that I actually work here and it's a full-time job. They just think it's like a Sunday morning gig, you know, like a 10-hour-a-week job or something like that. I don't know. It's kind of funny. People have preconceived ideas, you know, false ideas about what it's like. One of the things I've noticed, an oddity to my profession that I think is kind of um, unique to my profession in a lot of ways, is that uh, my world is one in which a lot of people feel comfortable challenging me. Now stick with me here, okay? Because what I'm not saying is that anyone who disagrees with me is a dope or that you shouldn't disagree with me because that's disrespectful. By all means, if ever I say something you don't agree with, I I would love the dialogue with you. And the truth is, I'm not a learned theologian. I'm not a super intelligent guy, and I'm not always right. And so I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is, in the world of theology and religion and morality, people tend to take a much more subjective approach than what they do in other areas of life. For instance, I know a few to no one who would invite a professional electrician into their home to like rewire their house and do a bunch of electrical work and then stand over his shoulder constantly correcting him and challenging him on the decisions they make and say, well, shouldn't you be doing this instead of that? And it'd be like, well, what makes you think you know what you're talking about? Well, because I've turned on a lot of lights in my lifetime and I've replaced some light bulbs and and I've been around this stuff for a long time. So my gut just tells me you're doing it wrong. I think you need to do it my way. And they'd be like, what? What? I- you probably wouldn't have that. Can you imagine only like, observing uh, like a cardiologist doing like real intricate heart surgery and you're up in the gallery watching this surgery and all of a sudden you interrupt and you yell down and say, hey, I don't think you should do that. And he'd look up and say, who are you? And you'd say, well, I've had a heart surgery myself. I've watched a lot of TV shows with doctors on it. And so my gut just tells me, I, I just can't agree with how you're doing this. See, we wouldn't do that. And the reason why is this. We're comfortable with objective truth in certain areas, like electricity, because the truth is if you don't do it right, you're going to burn your house down. In the areas of medicine, because if you don't do it right, you're going to kill the patient instead of heal them. So there's a lot of areas of life where we acknowledge objective truth. There's a right and a wrong, right? But in the areas of religion, theology, morality, ethics, we're not comfortable with objective truth. And so many people instead approach it from a very subjective, wishy-washy kind of like, hey, this could be true or that could be true. What's true for you may not be true for me. And it's just kind of, and therefore people are comfortable just saying, well, I think this, or I think that about God. And when I get in conversations with people, you know, I I, want to to understand where they're coming from. And, you know, they'll make a statement like, well, I don't think God would ever feel that way. Or I don't think God would ever say that. And I was like, well, that's interesting. What makes you think God would never say that? Or what makes you think that that doesn't represent God? And they're like, well, I just don't think so. I, don't, I just don't think so. Oh, okay, but why do you? And they're like, I just don't feel that. I, I, it just seems wrong to me. I, I just can't imagine God saying that or being like this or doing that. And it's very, very subjective, but the truth is, most of the people in our culture, their religious beliefs, their views about God are a mashup. You know what a mashup is? Remember when Glee was real popular as a TV show? And remember what they made popular is they would do mashups. They would take one song and take another song and combine them, to disparate, you know, very different songs and, and kind of... And it sounded pretty cool on Glee, right? But when you do that with theology... It doesn't come out quite as cool, okay, and, and it comes out very contradictory. But see, most people, their religious beliefs, it's a mashup of the following. Something they heard their grandpa say when they were a kid, an episode of Oprah they saw about 10 years ago and they still remember that interview. The fly leaf of a religious book they read at Barnes and Noble last year they remember that and uh, and conversations they 've had with their across the street neighbor and and it's just it's just you know it's uh, just a little bit here, a little bit there, and they 've kind of thrown it all in a pot, and that 's the basis for what they believe about God and for what they consider truth to be and so we 're comfortable with objective truth in some areas, but in this area, many people tend to shy away. That's why the words of Jesus that we're looking at this morning can be so abrasive, because what Jesus claims that we're going to be looking at this morning flies in the face of the predominant culture in our country. And even as believers, you can hear these words and they can make you wince and maybe embarrass you a little bit and make you wonder, hey, do I really buy that? And so Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Folks, that's some serious countercultural thought, all right? That is reasoning that flies in the face of what's popular. The teaching that we're looking at today in John chapter 14 is in a portion of scripture commonly called the upper room discourse. And uh, it's John chapters 13 through 17. And the setting is Jesus is meeting with his 12 disciples for one final time. His death is imminent. He knows it, and so he gathers his 12 friends, he gathers his ministry team for one last time together. And Jesus is preparing them for his departure. Once he leaves, it's going to be their privilege and responsibility to carry on his work. And the atmosphere in the upper room is tense, and it's uneasy, and the disciples are troubled. They're disturbed. They know something big is about to go down, but they don't know exactly what what? And they just feel troubled. They're troubled for a couple of reasons. Let me tell you why it made the atmosphere in this room so uneasy. For one thing, they know their master is about to leave them he 's told them that, but they don 't understand why he 's leaving them they don 't understand where he 's going, and they don 't feel ready for him to be gone and so they 're like fighting back panic, like what is happening here? Second reason why they 're uneasy is because Jesus has just announced to them there 's a traitor in their midst that this group of twelve guys who 've spent every day together practically for the last three years and have grown really really tight he 's telling them one of them is going to betray him. And so they're looking around the table and they can't imagine who it's going to be. And so obviously you can imagine that would be very unsettling for them. And then the other reason why they're so troubled is because Jesus has just told them that Peter is going to deny him three times before the night is over. Well, Peter was like the unofficial leader of their group. He was the guy with the strongest personality. He was the guy with the most enthusiastic faith. And it's like, wait a minute, you're calling out Peter in front of everybody and predicting he's going to deny you? Why would Peter do that? What circumstances would cause him to do that? And if Peter folds like that, what are we going to do? What's going to happen to our faith in you? And so you can just imagine how uneasy and how troubled the disciples were. And so in this final ministry team meeting, we see the final steps that Jesus takes as the rabbi. Here's what he does. First of all, in his final steps as the rabbi, Jesus serves them. He washes their feet. He sets an example for them. He does something that normally a lowly servant would do and says, that's the lifestyle I want you to live. I want you to not place yourself above others, but rather humbly serve others. I've set an example for you. Secondly, he teaches them. He gives them content, information they need to move forward, to not be fearful, to be comforted. And so he teaches them. Third, he prays for them. In John 17, he prays for them. He prays for the believers that would come after them, us, and prays that they'd be unified and that they'd be faithful. And then finally, he dies for them. That after their ministry team meeting is over, he goes out, he's arrested, he's beaten, and he's killed, and it's done for them. And so it's that context in which we read our passage of Scripture this morning, I would invite you to please stand now at the reading of God's word as we read John chapter 14. It says, "'Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I am going.'" No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would have known who my Father is. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, Have I've been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father's who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Heavenly Father, I would ask this morning that as we look at this claim of Jesus Christ, that you would give us open minds and hearts, that Father, you'd Help us to have coachable spirits and be open to the truth of your word. I ask, Father, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. That, Father, um, we would understand these words and be able to apply them to our lives. Father, we pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. In the remainder of our time together, I want to split it in half. So I want to take just a few minutes to unpack the richness behind the meaning of Christ saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But first, I want to just super briefly deal with this exclusive, very narrow claim that Jesus makes where he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. In our pluralistic society, that can feel pretty problematic, can't it? because it's very narrow and very exclusive, and and we're not sure what to do with that. And so on real practical terms, here's what we've got to wrestle to the ground we've got to deal with. We say, wait a minute, my next door neighbors aren't religious at all. They never go to church. They don't even believe in God, but they're the nicest people. They're the most honest people, and they're so kind and generous. And do you mean to tell me that they're not okay without Jesus? Do you mean to tell me that they're wrong, that they're missing something? And you say, I have Indian friends. I have friends from India at work and they're so kind and they're so friendly and they're raised in a society where Christianity wasn't their religion and they're sincere in their religion. And so you mean to tell me that they're wrong, that their sincerity doesn't do any good, that, 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 that Christianity is the only way and so on and so on. In cultures all around the world and within our own culture, of so many secularized people and people who reject a belief in God, to say, are we willing to say they too need Jesus? The exclusivity of the gospel is seen throughout the Bible. I want you to see how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament symbols and teachings. That from the very beginning of God dealing with human beings, they served foreshadowing towards Christ and the exclusiveness of the Savior. First of all, I want you to think about the curtain, the curtain that was in the temple. The holy place was separated from the holy of holies or the most holy place by a thick curtain that went from ceiling to floor. And in the most holy place is where the very presence of God resided. And the Ark of the Covenant was there and the presence of God resided above the Ark of the Covenant. And it was such a holy place that it would consume sinful human beings. And so a curtain was placed there. So it was a dividing point between a holy God and sinful human beings. And only one person, the high priest could enter the most holy place once a year on the day of atonement. And so it set God apart as as holy and, and, and removed from the human race, and this curtain stood as that symbol. It's a reminder of one of the things that happened at the moment Jesus died. Do you remember what happened at the moment Jesus died? The gospel writers record that in the temple in Jerusalem, that the curtain tore from top to bottom. That the curtain split open because Christ gained access for us to the Holy of Holies. Second, symbol I want you to see, is the rejection of man-made efforts. That throughout the Old Testament, anytime people tried to approach God on their own terms, it was met with disaster. That God has laid out how he is to be approached. And so it's not a game where we determine the rules as we move along. God has already given instructions for how we gain access to him. And so man-made efforts are rejected. Third, when you look at the choice of Aaron alone, Aaron was the brother of Moses and he was the very first high priest appointed. And one guy, him and him alone, he was, he was created to be high priest and then after him, other appointed high priests. But that was the one guy who could go into the most holy place one day a year on the day of atonement to represent the people and provide a sacrifice for their sins. And again, the idea of one person one Savior who would represent the people before a holy God, the idea of Jesus being the way. Now, Jesus reiterated this in his own teachings in a lot of different places. Let me give you one example. Matthew 7, it says, Jesus's words, he says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way, but the gateway to life is very narrow. And the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. I think of the words that Pat and Vijay read just a few moments ago. Let's do a quick review, okay? Acts 4, verse 12, referring to Christ. It says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there is one God... And one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. And so folks, here's the point I'm trying to make. You can't intellectually be honest and say the Bible doesn't teach the exclusive saviorship of Christ. Because from first page to last, that's the message loud and clear. What you can say is that you disagree with the Bible. You can say you disagree with the Bible, but don't say the Bible doesn't teach that because it does. And I understand how abrasive that is in our pluralistic subjective culture. But as people of faith, that's one of the things we humbly have to cling to. And folks, it doesn't make us any better than anybody else. We're not superior in any way. But it does impress upon us the need to reach the lost and to have the personal conviction that, yeah, apart from Jesus, people are in trouble, that they don't have forgiveness. They don't have eternal life. They are separated from God, and that's a problem. And if we love people, we're gonna love them with the love of Christ and share his message with them. Now, let's shift gears. Last few minutes here. I wanna shift gears and look at this claim I am the way, the truth, and the life, and unpack it just a little bit. It's easy to read this like a grocery list, like Jesus saying, okay, I'm three things. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, but it's more than that. I think the proper reading of it, it's more elliptical in nature, and what it's saying is, I am the way because I am the truth, and I am the truth because I am the life. That one thing springs out of the other or is is true because of the other things. And so Jesus is the way and he takes believers to his father's house. John 14, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. We believe in a real heaven. We believe in eternal life. We believe Jesus provides access to us. And, you know, such an important view for us to have as people of faith is that this world is not our home. You know, that our final destination is heaven. And our time on earth is just a nanosecond compared to all eternity. And that allows us to endure. That allows us to face suffering. That allows us to say no to the temptation because we realize this world is not our home. The suffering is going to be but for a short time and we can remain faithful to him knowing that heaven awaits us. And folks, that should give us hope. And that should give you the encouragement you need to live fully for God even during difficult times. But Jesus has made the commitment that he's going before us and that he'll take us to the Father's house. He is the way. Secondly, you see that Jesus is the truth, and that means that he reveals the Father's heart. What is truth is probably the ultimate debate topic, and philosophers and theologians down through the centuries have debated that. Pontius Pilate asked Jesus that at his his trial. He said, what is truth? It's not a, a new controversial topic. People have been struggling with that since the beginning of time. What is truth? Obviously in our time together and for our purposes this morning, um, we can't dive into that too deep. But let me give you a Christian worldview definition of truth. For those of us who are people of faith, truth is this, that which corresponds with the mind and will of God. That which aligns with the mind and will of God. And so you see, Jesus showed us God. He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. But you see, Jesus was the tangible expression of an invisible God, of who God is and what God is like. And so you need to just study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see how Jesus interacted with people, see how he treated people, see what his values in life were, and what he believed and what he taught. And folks, that's God. He reveals the Father's heart to us. And folks, that's good news, because what we discover is a God who loves you. What we discover is a God who's offering forgiveness, God who wants you to walk with him and to experience his blessings and that he's provided all that we need to be connected with him through his son. And so he reveals the father's heart. I love these words in John 1, verse 17 and 18. Check them out. It says, for the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. Here it is no one has ever seen God. But the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. That's some powerful stuff. Lastly, Jesus is the life and he gives us complete fulfillment. We know God's word teaches that he has placed eternity within the human heart. And I believe it's innate within every human being that we hate death, that we sense death is unnatural and and it's not right. And we sense we were made to live forever, that we have an eternal soul. And so Jesus gives us the gift of eternal life. That thing we fear most, death, he banishes that fear and says, hey, your physical death will be just like stepping from one world into the next. Because Jesus has gone ahead of you. And Jesus conquered death through his own resurrection and shares that with you. And so Jesus gives us life. But even more than that, that eternal life doesn't start when we die. But he gives us a rich and satisfying life now. Because even now as we live our lives, we have this restlessness, this sense of discontentment. And it's this idea that there's got to be more. That something is missing. And the answer is Christ Christ. That it's God in our lives that brings the fulfillment here and now in the sense that our life has meaning and our life has purpose. And that's why Jesus would say in John 10.10, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. That's what the false shepherd does. The false shepherds of the world don't have your best interests in mind. But the good shepherd, the true shepherd says my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Folks, God wants you to walk with him and know him. And that was the whole purpose of his sending his son. And so I want to encourage you to embrace Christ. I want to encourage you to place your trust in him and experience the life that he desires to give you. For those of you who know Christ and are followers of His, I want to challenge you with the responsibility you have because of the exclusive claims of Christianity, the responsibility you have to lovingly share Him with your neighbors and with your co workers and with your family. That apart from Christ, they are not okay. And sincerity in other things isn't going to be effective. That there's one way through Jesus. The good news is God loves every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And the one true living God doesn't speak exclusive English. And he's not American. And he's not white. That our God is a God who loves every people, speaks every language, and therefore everyone needs him. Everyone needs him.